0: So, this evening, I would like to talk about the three characteristics that Stephen has mentioned a little uh, impermanence, dukkha, and uh, non self. And to me, uh, what I, what, why I'm interested in them in terms of the practice is because i think it's in a way when students talk about the third wisdom the wisdom which comes from bhavana which comes from cultivation and it seems to me that in meditation when we in a way experience those characteristics that it be in the meditation itself or outside of the meditation actually from that i would say we actually have uh, wisdom which uh, is developed, but also compassion. So I would say that the characteristics for me are very much linked to to compassion, to actually experiencing and you know being responsive in a compassionate way. So that's what I like to, to look at today. And 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 it is you could say it is strange in a way because. Uh, if you look at the three characteristics, I mean, they look a little, how do you say, <laughs> not that much fun, because <laughs> it's impermanent, it's suffering, it's emptiness, and it kind of, you might say, but what is the connection, in a way, with compassion? But I would say, actually, it's when we really know the characteristic, when we really not know them intellectually, but when we, we know them, in a very deep-felt experiential way, that it seems to me that, you know, nearly naturally, then there is this compassionate attitude. So that's what I like to look a little at today. So the first one is anicca, impermanence, and personally, I like to look at it in two ways, which is. The aspect of what you would call ultimate impermanence, ultimate chance, which is death, and what I would call just ordinary chance. And so, death, I mean, this is the ultimate chance that as long as we are alive, it's other people who die. I mean, this is fair enough, you (laughs) know. And so because of that, yes. and but I think because of that, because you know way it happens to other people until it happens to us, because of that I think they get this kind of attitude where we start to, to take life for granted. And, and so that we kind of live our life with generally the assumption that, well, at least I will live for the next five years, or at least until retirement, so I can get my pension. It's interesting how we view, There is kind of like we think, well, you know, we are in a modern society, we expected to live till 75, so well, I could make it till 60 and whatever. And so there is this kind of underlying assumption that, yeah, yeah, we should kind of, unless something terrible happens, we should last uh, the course for a little while. And I think that actually has a certain uh, influence on our behaviour, that we actually take ourselves for granted and we take others for granted. And I think from that, they kind of, that's why I think we have a kind of, we start to have this perverse effect of kind of um, getting upset for minute things. And sometimes I think the criterion could be, Would I still get upset about this if I or the other person were to die tomorrow? To me, this is a benchmark, you know? So that I would not be so upset about, camp, but if somebody is violent, even if they die tomorrow, I want to talk about it. I want to really kind of look at it. And it seems to me in the face of death, of our imminent death, and imminent death for other people, I think then we can have a more kind of, of uh, the way we encounter and engage with life seems to me to start to be possibly a little wiser so really a little wisdom come out of that because in a way by taking life for granted i think we kind of in a way it dissipate, that wonderment even <laughs> still can't keep talking about the fact that we are alive at all is it isn't it amazing that and now I am sitting here talking to you and that you're all alive you know as long as we're alive we're not dead I mean this is and but in a way to appreciate that can we live from that knowledge to me it, it makes a big difference to live from that experience that in any moment it could solve so until then can I really in a way appreciate it and live life to the full potential it offer me in this moment and that's what I kind of find whenever I encounter that uh, somebody dying like recently I was in uh, in December my grandmother died I mean she was age 94 so she had a good run she had a very good run but what is interesting for me when she died and I was there I was in the house was that we actually did not know. I mean, we, we thought she looked dead, but we, we couldn't be sure she was dead. And we phoned the doctor, he say, wait a bit, then we're really sure that she is dead. And it was an interesting experience, that in, in a way, the person looks so alive for at least the next two, three hours, that you kind of really, you don't really know. And there is in a way that kind of, well, they don't look dead. You know, we have all this idea of how people look dead, but I mean, it's not like in the movie. It's not like that at all. It's not kind of And so in a way, we kind of, we don't know if life is gone or not. And what was interesting for me in that experience was, of course, I mean, my mother was very distraught and I was there for her and I was sad that my grandmother was dead, but at the same time, I was surprised. I mean, she was 94, she'd been ill for the last month, although the doctor the day before had said she's medically better, so we kind of expectation, you know, she would maybe recover. And then she died, it was this kind of shock. Oh, she's not there anymore. So I think, in a way, we never expect it, we're always surprised by death. And to me, every time, there is a death like that that I I really see an encounter, at that moment again and again I experience the deep impermanence of life, but at that moment too I experience the deep preciousness of life, that actually, for it's interesting if you really are with death, at that moment there is about a week or two weeks after which, in a way, you nearly feel like you come out of retreat. The fact that everything looks really bright, really kind of, you're really focused. I mean, that's where you're really present to the moment. So in a way, you know it can go, it can disappear, it can dissipate. And at that moment, there is this incredible compassion for life because it's so fleeting. So you look at everybody around you with these eyes of compassion because you feel deeply this impermanence the the possibility of death in any moment and that's why at that level i think it is important that you know the fact that we might die any moment for me doesn't make me anxious because i don't know when it's going to happen but it makes me more wanting to take care of life to be with life fully as much as i can in this moment and then there is the other aspect of impermanence, which is change, plain, ordinary, standard change. But we don't generally think about it in a, in a special way where things change. But to me, I would say, actually, change is a gift. Change is a gift of impermanence. Because imagine a world where nothing changed whatsoever. Such a world could not live. There could not be anything born. There could not be anything flowering. Everything would be fixed. So in a way, I think impermanence. when we really know impermanence, we know no change, then actually I would think it makes for a much more compassionate attitude because we don't fix. We don't think this person will never change. It seems to me one of the most uncompassionate things we can do is when we say about ourselves or other, I am always like this, you are always like that, you will never amount to much. I mean, this is what his uh, old master said to Stephen, age 18, and he refused to shake his hand because he said, Bachelor, you will never amount to much. <laughs> you will never do anything serious in your life. <laughs> and it was interesting, you know, the fact that somebody would say that to a young man. You know, you will never get anywhere. You will always be the same. But in, and how uncompassionate, I would say. And in a way, I think it's very important for us to look at this. To look at when we say this word, always, in reference to ourselves or others, how we think that person. We're basically saying you do it day in, day out, forever after. I mean, what a vision. It's very fixing, very very hard, actually, very harsh. So I think to, in a way, in a way to, to, to notice when we start to do this and to try to, in a way, de-fix that. To say that okay these people might have a tendency to do this but it doesn't mean they always do it and in that i think there is a compassion that in a way as steven was talking about this morning this capacity to awaken is there but of course it can be slow it can be fast and so it's true that sometimes some people don't seem to change very fast and we would like to kind of you know Get yourself together a little faster. But I think to me, this is a compassionate attitude to actually annulate, even though in the moment they don't seem to be able to change, to move. There is always that possibility. There is a possibility. And recently my nephew told me a very kind of, I thought I was quite touched and surprised by, by it because he kind of he's moved back to where we, we nearby where we are near Bordeaux and he was saying, oh you know the last two years I was really depressed and I really, I was in a bad shape and you know what helped me? and I said, I don't know I mean did you go to the therapist or take some, you know, kind of uh, drugs or whatever and he said, no, no, I remembered what you told me previously like kind of five years ago when i was really i had no job and i was really in a bad shape and he told me to meditate <laughs> i thought you know why not you know it's at least the only thing i can kind of you know possibly help him with of being kind and so i had told him about you know watching the breath and things like that and he said you know five years later how he was going through this very difficult period He said to me i could see that i had to do something otherwise i would really really become really badly depressed and that's when it kind of pops up in my mind oh i could say what auntie martin said (laughs) and it worked he said it worked he did this meditation he just you know watched his breath and he seems to have you know stabilized his mood you know that his strength could come up and i would have never thought and these young men, these rather tortured young men, would think of it and would do it. So in a way, to see, and actually, often we kind of we 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 plant seeds, and we think nothing is going to come out of this seed. But we never know because later on, they might flower, they might blossom. Then there is the next characteristic, which is dukan. And as I was explaining yesterday evening, generally Dukkha has various aspects. And there is a part which is about unreliability, the part about unsatisfactoriness, and the part about suffering. And I think each one is quite interesting to kind of look into, to kind of try to see what does it mean in my experience. So when I'm talking about this thing, I'm really kind of in a way asking you to look In your experience, how does it work? I mean, because if you look at it, generally, especially this modern world, is really set up for reliability. I mean, in England now, you have this wonderful system, you know, where you go to the train station and they will tell you how reliable is the train. And, you know, it seems like sometimes it's 95% and sometimes it's 80% and, you know, it depends. But it's interesting, you know, this generally everything goes toward reliability. You know, people have to be reliable, kind of company has to be reliable. And, of course, as Stephen says, it makes for a kind of a stable society. And if it makes for a much more comfortable society, there is no doubt. You know, if you go to India and you wait for the train for a day, yeah, you know, it's kind of a different unreliability. I mean, there you really experience it moment to moment. And so, in a way, but what is interesting, what does it do to us is unreliability. When we think things should be reliable, I press the electricity box, there is light. I open the uh, tap, there is water. And for me, it was interesting to live in Korea before it became so modern now, which is very different, but in my medieval time, in the 70s, there was electricity was not very reliable water the same and it was interesting to live like that because actually when everything is reliable it's very interesting we become we could say oh great this is nice but we do more than that we expect this is a problem with reliability we expect reliability and then we become very impatient and in a way i could see this in the 70s i found the korean people very. Very patient, very spacious in that way. And I was very interested in this time, again and again, like going in the subway, now we are in 204, and people very impatient, very kind of cutting, very. I was very surprised, very different. And I think, in, the, in a way, this is nearly that kind of the effect of reliability, of technology. So, in a way, to look, this is, I think, the Buddha is not saying everything is unreliable there is a relatively stability in certain things but if we rely too much on it if we expect too much and generally it has various negative effects and i would say one of the first one is impatience and from that in a way often impatience really in a way cut compassion then there is the next one which is satisfaction and this is interesting Because in a way, there is this famous song, satisfaction, (laughs) wonderful song. But in a way if we look, satisfaction, we generally don't think so much about it as a word. You know, is my life satisfactory or not? We generally don't think about it. But if we really look in our experience, we spend a lot of our time addicted to the hope that something is going to give me lasting satisfaction, which generally we call happiness. I mean, and in America nowadays, you must be happy. If you're not happy, then you have a lot of trouble, you know? I mean, it's kind of, you know, like kind of a, what's the matter with you? You're not happy. And in a way, we kind of work. It seems to be our life is spent trying to get the right object or the right relationship or the right whatever it is that will finally give us lasting satisfaction. And we get it? And how long does it last? If you look at, you know, the right relationship, the right job, the right house, the right car, the right meditation technique, the right teacher, how long does it last? Very little. Because no, not one thing, can, not, not any one external thing can ever bring us lasting satisfaction. And I think this is quite important to kind of in a way be aware of that. That to be careful of this addiction, and I think what is interesting is that we addicted to the excitation that comes from the hope. So remember, when you wait for something, you're going to get. You're waiting for a book. You're waiting for your birthday and all the presents you're going to get. This, you know, they're not so great or whatever it is. How is it? In a way, what we are addicted I think, is that expectation of waiting for. Something. And it's interesting that so we kind of there is a desire to be satisfied, and then now it's more like this excitation and so in a way we're very exciting and we're enjoying that excitation to get something new more wonderful or whatever we get it it lasts about i don't know a day a month often at the most and then and then of course we feel deflated so then how do we build up again the excitation by what is the new thing i mean it's yes, a very simple thing it could be maybe more for the ladies and for the men i don't know Mm -hmm. it's you know clothes look at you know the next kind of you know nice dress or even i was not so interested in kind of dressing up and i could see it after i mean it was interesting being in the monastery and having no clothes very little clothes and not worrying about it because they were provided because then kind of being this kind of "Ah," in the shop very interesting, you know, you have a lens, you kind of have all this excitation about getting it and you get it, uh, you know, <laughs> until the next thing. So in a way, not looking at that, looking at this kind of, this idea of lasting satisfaction, then the kind of the, the hope, and in a way the, the kind of the slight addiction attachment to the excitation. But of course it does not mean we cannot enjoy what is pleasant. I don't mean that we cannot have a momentary satisfaction I think is fairly essential as a human being if we want to be relatively healthy and you know and kind of good nature and livable then generally it's good to kind of you know but knowing that it will not last something will replace it something will happen so that actually because it's changing, then we can enjoy it while it lasts to me that would be in a way the turning around of it to be compassionate to ourselves, to enjoy it while it lasts, and then seeing it go. And in that way, I think what we can have, maybe not lasting satisfaction, but inner contentment. And that's what I noticed with my teacher, Master Cousin, is whenever he was, he was okay. There was this kind of like, level of inner contentment which did not really depend, it's not that he did not react to circumstances, but it did not depend necessarily on him getting this or that. And there was this kind of quite calm, stable, what I would call inner contentment, which then you kind of often, it kind of radiates. When you're with somebody who is like that, with that inner contentment, it's kind of like radiates. And you feel quite, yeah, it's kind of nice to be with people who are like that, who are not wanting something new every minute. Generally suffering. Or so you could say dukkha dukkha. And suffering I think is interesting to look at it in meditation in our experience in different ways. The first one I would say it's about to me the awareness practice really helps us to know the suffering. I think until we really know the suffering we cause ourselves and others but really like know it in our mind, in our heart, in our body, until we really truly experience it then we're not going to change. Because if you really truly experience in your whole body and mind and heart complex suffering then you will let go of it. You know, unless somebody is beating you up then, you know, you get out but if it's suffering that we create ourselves, in a way we have to really know it totally before you see, but why am I doing this to myself? Why am I creating this unpleasantness to myself? And then it's very interesting, once you really see it, often you really can just let it go. You see what you do to yourself and you say, hey, why do I do this? And it's not, you don't think about it, this is very important, this characteristic is not something you think about. Because I remember when I was 18 and I had all this idea about peace, love and whatever, then I would say to myself, don't be jealous. It had no effect whatsoever. And that's why I started to do meditation. Because what I'm talking is going really in the experience of the suffering. If we really know it. I mean, for example, if you are jealous, or angry, or whatever it is, if you really know it, it is extremely painful at all levels. And then I think when by knowing it, we can, in a way, let go of it and then try to deal with the situation creatively. It's not saying, I am not angry when you are, or I am not jealous when you are, but it's kind of looking. Then you can look at the condition or where is this suffering coming from, what is going on? Then I would say there is, the, what is interesting is with our habits, which I might talk more about tomorrow, but like yesterday I was saying that you in a way have a habit and then finally you have enough creative awareness to, to think, well, maybe I could do something different. And then you do something different once you go over the fear, and to me, what was very interesting in when this has happened to me, is that on the other side of that, there was compassion. That until that moment, I couldn't see that my attitude created suffering to myself and others. And I think it's interesting when we're locked in negative habits and patterns, we do this generally to protect ourselves. So, in protecting ourselves, we don't realize that we create suffering to ourselves and to others. But once you go beyond the habit, then you realize the pain you created to yourself and others. And so now, I could not continue to do what I did, because now I know that this causes suffering, when before, you just think of the protection. And I think this is interesting too, in terms of suffering, to kind of see that. And from that again, arise is compassion for your suffering and somebody else's suffering and then there is what we would call the kind of plain, uh dukkha of pain of you know when you're in suffering that it be mental suffering emotional suffering of ethical suffering and again i think it is interesting to be with the suffering not that you want to create more suffering but when you suffer in a way, to know it and to know its characteristics. And actually, for me, there is two main characteristics in suffering. One is that it is painful, and the second one is that it is very isolating. And to me, if we really analyze these two factors, then we cannot but have compassion for ourselves when we suffer because we are in pain and we are isolated. And from others who also when they're in pain, they will feel very isolated because nobody can feel your pain for you. And I remember that there was this occasion, when I was in the hospital in, uh, in France, I mean the first operation in England had not worked, so I had a second one, not a major one, but a little one. And so I was in hospital, I mean this was France, so you stayed, you know, for a week in the hospital, not like in England, you just have two hours. But, so, and I had the operation and they kind of, when they kind of put me to sleep, they must have done something with my mouth and then I was not kind of, I could not really speak well and I would kind of talk. And then this friend came that I had not seen in a long time and they came from America and they were passing by and Stephen brought them. And so we were together and I was trying to talk to them and I could not talk to them because I was talking. And it was interesting experience because they left very quickly and i felt they left quickly because they felt by staying i would try to talk more and i would try to talk more and it was just unbearable for everybody but actually maybe we could have just stayed together not expecting anything and i think sometimes there is we have a difficulty with pain when especially when other people are in pain because It's so painful, they're in pain, you cannot do anything about it, you think, well if I am here maybe it's worse, so I better get out. Well actually no, the people might want you to be there, but to be there in a different way, in a way without expectations. In a way, I think often there is this compassion of knowing the pain, knowing the isolation, and in a way being here in a different way, which accommodates the specific suffering that is happening in this moment then there is a last uh, characteristic which Stephen had already mentioned uh, today today. anatta, which is can be again there is different aspect non-self, emptiness, interdependence so as Stephen was saying the idea of non-self does not mean that there is nobody there because often i i I'm, i have the feeling that people when they meditate they either have the fear or the hope that they're going to one day disappear in a puff of smoke you know that there will be one day at the end of the retreat nobody on the cushion but no i think the idea of non-self is more that we there is we're not fixed we're not solid we are not just one thing And to me, this is in a way what meditation does, is meditation makes us discover all the conditions that forms us and have formed us at any moment. And actually, that's why I would say meditation is a journey of discovery, actually of the self, but not the fixed self, but what constitutes the self, what conditions the self, what makes it up what influences it? because actually we, we are relatively stable but we also relatively changing and I find it always very interesting to see that kind of relative stability tomorrow morning as I sit there I doubt there will be a giraffe instead of me you know I won't change that much you know unless something really dramatic happens So there is a relative stability. But within that, there is a relative change. And I think generally we're more aware of the stability than we're aware of the change. And so in a way, I think this is this, with meditation, I think we're more and more aware of kind of how we influence, condition, how things change. Our our moods change, our thoughts change, sensations change. And in a way, that's what is meant by non-self. And also the fact that we're not reducible I think this is the thing that we're not reducible to any one condition that forms us. Because often I think that's what we do. We reduce ourselves to one of the components, one of the qualities that forms us. But at any given moment, we more than just one feeling, one thought, one sensation, one condition, whatever it is. We are so many different things. At any given moment. So personally, the way I would look at this non-self is that we are a flow of conditions. That actually what we are is this flow of conditions. That there is all these things that constitute us and we are in slight movement, more or less, according, it depends. And in a way that we fix this flow of conditions through language a lot of the time. When we say, I, me, mine. And that's what I find kind of in a way lovely with the chairs. The chairs don't seem to really belong to anybody at the back. Because well, I don't always see the same person on the chair. I mean, some are more stable than others, but it's kind of interesting. But because if we have a question often, you know, you have your question, well, this is mine. <laughs> you know, and if somebody comes, oh, my cousin. What are you doing? Oh my gosh, interesting, this I, me, mine, we've, to, we've got to use these um, this kind of uh, word to refer to ourselves for the sake of discourse. But it's interesting how then they can become this kind of quite fixed thing, so they can bring this very preparatory, you know, this is my property, you see, and then from there I have to protect it, I have to keep it, it's kind of, kind of how it kind of goes together, and I wonder if sometimes we, we have to say, this flow of condition is eating, this flow of condition uses a uh, cushion, if it, again, would bring a little spaciousness, in kind of the way we feel about it all. So in a way there is, what I would say, there is no self, but there is a functional self, as Steven was saying, and this functional self is made up of all this condition, and that's why we are different because often people think well if there is no self we are all going to become robots at the end of the week you are going to, I don't know, gonna, all the women become like Martine with a French accent and all like Stephen with his, you know beautiful English accent or whatever no, actually to me meditation makes us more, become more who we are and I think in terms of this feeling of self, of this functional self it, interesting to see what happens when that is damaged in some way. And I have a friend who two years ago, I mean before she had the stroke, she was this amazingly lively, intelligent, bright, cultured, amazing woman. And she had a stroke and she was kind of half-paralyzed and it was quite very severe. And what was interesting for us i mean we went to see her and we go and see her regularly is to see that i mean it was her and at the same time it was not her because she was not you know this buoyant culture person she was this heavily disabled person and so you could see her but briefly and to me what was beautiful recently just last week we went to see her suddenly it was like. She was not entirely back because she's still disabled, but she was more like, you know, really kind of herself. And how, in a way, I said, ah, you know, she's there. But at, at all, I mean, at all times she was there. But she was kind of just the component that I associated with her were less there, and maybe now are more there. I think this is interesting how we look at ourselves and at other selves, you know, what is it that constitutes it? It's not some mysterious essence, but actually all these things that actually make them who they are. And it was the same with my grandmother, that in, the, in the, uh, when she was younger, she was very incredibly open and lively and working in the garden and really quite lively again person and in the last two years of, of her life i could see you know it's kind of like the light dimming, dimming and dimming and dimming and dimming and it was interesting that to see in a way the the human being staying and what i would call the self actually the the appearing self disappearing that was very kind of in a way and very kind of uh, moving in a way to see that happening to kind of see where is this self residing? what is it? how is it? I think in this moment it is very poignant to see all these kind of assumptions we have about the self and the person so I would say that meditation actually helps us to build, to, contrib- to contrib- contributing to the very, what I would call a healthy a sense of functioning self, a healthy flow of conditions. I think this is very much what it is about. It is not to kind of eradicate kind of any notion of self. Then there is this notion of emptiness. And again, as Stephen was pointing out, it doesn't say again that we're kind of going to disappear into a black hole but that actually we do not exist separately, independently, from everything that sustains us. And to me this is an interesting thing to to reflect on, because often we have this feeling, we are very independent, we are very separate, and we might feel actually very isolated. And then to reflect, how do I come into being? how is my being sustained and actually my being is sustained by everything that comes outside of me, the air I breathe, the water I drink, the food I I eat, the clothes I wear, the house I live in, the medicine I take, etc. But do we think of that? We generally have this interesting feeling that we are like this block we have this block this kind of separate blocks from all the blocks and i have to protect my block because you know they're going to who knows and i think this is in a way the the suffering that comes from this sense of fixed separate identity that actually we forget that our whole being survive actually from benefiting from the outside and that's why in a way there is a link of emptiness and interdependence and for me that's where in a way compassion comes in to see that in a way we all start connected together through the air that we breathe but also that our life is totally dependent on the labors of others I mean we're totally dependent on the labor energy that people kind of work to bring the food etc etc but we seem to again take all of this for granted, and we feel very disconnected, very unrelated. And so the, when we think of emptiness, of course it looks like it's kind of this weird concept, there is somewhere this emptiness, but actually I think, no, it's more about looking. What is it that for me? How am I connected with everything else? How am I participating? To me this is the next question, how am I participating in this connection? What am I bringing to this connection? What am I bringing to this life I find myself in? And I think meditation it seems to me can help us there to really in a way open, I would say to really open to ourselves and the world and us in the world. What is going on? How do I connect? how do I come in contact, how do I relate, how do I use the resources, etc. And just one more thing is about, in a way, one thing we do, and that's why it's kind of interesting this idea of emptiness and non-self, is in terms of quality. You see, we have this... Somewhere we have this idea there is fixed entity, we are fixed entity, other people are fixed entity, things also are fixed entity. And then on top of this fixed entity, then there is fixed quality. And I think this causes a lot of suffering. So you have a good chair, if I'm very tired and I sit on it, and it's a bad chair if it's in the way. And then I'll kick it, because it should not be there. And it's the same, with people, you have bad people, and you have good people. And it's interesting, when somebody who is supposed to be bad do something good, you cannot surprise, how come? You know? They're not supposed to. They're supposed to be all bad, It's forever. And it's even more surprising if somebody who is supposed to be a good person, and don't do something bad. I mean, if you, I have a great admire of Gandhi, but the way he was with his family, he was fairly horrible. You know, and one of his sons kind of killed himself, maybe not because of him, but it might not have kind of helped the circumstances. You know, so in a way, one can see that the, the goodness, the badness is not in the thing. It's not stuck. I mean, there is nowhere where it can be stuck. And it's not fixed. And that's why I think at that level, why emptiness, non-Self, this uh, characteristic is important to see. What is going on here? To see that actually it is conditional. That the goodness, the badness very much depends on condition. And we can observe this within ourselves. We are, I mean, we can be very happy bodies. I mean, very nice and friendly and peaceful and ready to help. But if you're tired, if you're impatient, if you're busy, I would say you might not be so and it has nothing to do with any interesting goodness or badness. You have good intentions, I'm sure everybody has good intentions. So is, but why is it that when we have good intentions sometimes the result is not so good? It is conditioned, it's not something which is inherent in the structure. And so in a way that's why I think it is important to look at kind of this idea of it's something within then onto it there would be a fixed quality and in this way then if you fix that yourself or other then there is less fear and then there is I would say less protection and then there is more compassion and that's why at the moment I mean, I don't personally have a TV, but I, I, I like to read the Radio Times, the equivalent in France, to see what's happening, kind of sociologically, I find it interesting, all these kind of reality TV show and things. <laughs> and there is this very interesting one about this, actually, connection to this. Is this one, I don't know if you have in England, or possibly, what people exchange lives. You know, like, you know, and in France, the one they have is, you know, people exchange life or participate in the life of somebody they would normally avoid and there was one which i read about which was about this woman who was afraid of uh, disabled people and so the program was about her spending i think a week with a disabled person and lo and behold by the end of it she said oh they're human beings they cannot uh, and our view totally changed but because in a way she had gone beyond the fixed idea, the sixth image and she really met the human being and then her view totally changed and I think, I mean that's one of these reality programs, it's not so bad after all I think maybe there is a point there so I would say that in a way the first two, the impermanence and the unsatisfactoriness, I think this generally we can get relatively easily. I think we can generally know it, experience it, and I think generally from that, we generally have certain wisdom, we have certain compassion. But it is true, I would say the third one of non-self emptiness, interdependence, is a little harder because it's so close to us. It's very interesting, it's comes kind of so close to us, it's very hard for us to kind of see. But I think even that, With meditation I think over time we can penetrate that and it can also again change the way we behave the way we are in the world and I think one of the qualities it seems to give us that one the one about non-self when we start to understand it is that because we are less fixed we start to become a little more spacious and this is one of the qualities I could notice in my teacher Master Kuzan and I would say was also in this, nun with the beautiful smile, this feeling of spaciousness. You are with them and you have this feeling that there is space. And that in a way you also become, it's kind of contagious, you become spacious too at that moment. It's kind of like a quiet kind of certain feel you can have when these six cities start to dissolve. Stop. My time is up.